together corporately to be able to join with thousands around this globe who through down through the ages have joined in that Palm Sunday celebration of giving you praise and adoration. Receive ours today here and at the end of the service in a way that brings you glory. We thank you for this week. It changed our lives forever. And we're just delighted that we can come and celebrate it. May you be glorified on this campus, churches in this community who share the gospel of Jesus Christ and around this globe today. And may you receive all the praise and the adoration that you so richly deserve. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not sure if the city of Pittsburgh knows what to do with the old Mellon Arena, but if I had the opportunity to do something with that open roof, that one, if you remember, that opens every once in a while, I'd bring it in here and put it up on top. I'd love every once in a while, I know. Still, these managers going, yeah, now's a good time to think of that. Every once in a while, wouldn't you just love for the roof to open up and you just to be able to see the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings, and to give Him glory and praise and adoration? Now, I know yesterday you were wanting to build an ark, but today we have the opportunity to give Him praise, to join with people down through the ages who have come on this Palm Sunday to praise the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We join today in the adoration and the awesome, awesome privilege of being able to celebrate the anniversary of the greatest week in the history of humanity. There is no other week like this week. One-third of all the events recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John took place during the last couple of weeks of Jesus' life. More emotion is packed into this particular week than anyone could have ever imagined. No matter how hard they try to describe it, no matter how often Jesus tried to prepare them, no matter how many times he said, when I go to Jerusalem, I want you to know what's going to unfold. No matter how often that was shared, I can't even imagine that they grasped even a little bit of what they were going to see in front of them. One fascinating verse that we're going to expound on a little bit on Friday night, Good Friday communion celebration, is tucked away in the Gospel of John that said they didn't really fully understand all that he had said and even all that they had seen until after his glorification. I don't know if there's an event in your life when somebody tried to prepare you for it. They wanted to tell you what it was going to be like. They, they uh, kind of built up some amazing anticipation. But then when you were there, it almost took your breath away. I mean, you stood it, you, you saw it, you, you watched it unfold, whatever it may have been, from the Grand Canyon to the birth of a child, from that amazing gift that God's given you when you hold that little baby in your hands, and you just sit there with your breath taken away because you cannot believe this just happened. There's no way in our minds that we can fully grasp what it meant when it said the Father, the Son, and the Spirit had planned the events of this particular week since before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Before time began, God had been planning for this event. I've often wondered what it must have been like in heaven as this day begins to unfold, as it begins to unpack right in front of them. I really honestly picture God leaning over heaven somewhere and then all those angels saying, come on, you've got to see this. This is what I've been talking about for generation after generation after generation. From Genesis to Leviticus to Deuteronomy to Psalms to Malachi, I've been talking to you about this day. We've been waiting. We've been preparing. I've been longing to see it fulfilled. Galatians says in chapter 4, verse 4, at that right moment, God parted heaven and sent forth his Son. 
that he sent him for this week. And I've often wondered what it was like in heaven when there was somehow that opportunity to prepare everyone for this event that was about to unfold if God wasn't saying, this is it, and all of heaven held its breath for this whole week. There's a verse in Revelation that said that heaven was silent for about a half an hour. I wonder if that's the only time. If when this event was about to unfold and all of heaven watched it in front of them, if they didn't just hold their breath, as a king of kings now riding on a donkey instead of a triumphant king riding on a white horse with a blazing chariot behind him, walks into Jerusalem or rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. You've got to wonder if he says, if you only knew. If you only knew what was about to take place. Everything you've longed for, everything you've waited for, everything you hoped for, everything you believed in is about to come true. Down through the ages, century after century, generation after generation, father to son to son to son, constantly talked about this Messiah that was going to come. There were others of, other Messiahs, hundreds of them, that had come down through the ages, other prophets that I'm sure every once in a while they wondered, could this be the one? And now for the last two and a half to three years, they've seen some amazing events take place with this very one. All of Jerusalem is in a flutter. No one knows exactly how to predict exactly what's going to take place or what it's going to be like, but some historians tell us that the population of Jerusalem had grown five times for this particular day as they came together to celebrate the event of a lifetime. You and I, when we read these events, we've read them so often. We've gone through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we've seen the story, and we know how it's going to take place. It's one thing for you to look on this side when somebody tries to tell you what's going to happen and you've never experienced it. It's another thing to say, yeah, I know, I've been there. I saw it. I read the end of the story. Not a one of the people who are living it knows the end of the story. They hope maybe they know the end of the story. But you and I have the opportunity down through time for as many times as we gather during this Easter week to know the end of the story. And we sometimes leaf through the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John almost wanting to get to the end because we know how it's going to turn out. But none of them did. I believe there were very few people in Jerusalem that day who really had understood exactly what was about to take place or even what was unfolding in front of them. I can only imagine in my mind the mass array of humanity there that day and what was going through their minds. Jesus was the only one who knew how this was going to turn out and he walked into it fully committed to the plan. Very few else did. Can you picture in your mind who was there that day? When he shares with us in the Gospel of Luke, which is the one I'm referring to this morning in chapter 19 about the events as they unfold and the disciples going away to bring back a donkey to laying the cloth or a coat on top of him so Jesus could ride into the streets of Jerusalem. How the people would lay down their coats or lay down a blanket or wave palm branches or lay those palm branches down so that Jesus could walk into Jerusalem that day. I've often wondered in my mind what's running through the minds of the people who were there that day got to believe that a lot of them had been around on a number of occasions to see what had taken place. Many of them had seen his miracles. They'd heard a lot about his teachings. I wonder how many were there that day who were also on the mountain in Galilee who had heard the sermon on the, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. 
wonder how many of them were there that day who had been part of this incredible group of people who saw Jesus in front of them do the miraculous with a couple of pieces of fish and some loaves of bread and fed five to ten to twelve thousand people. I wonder if that lady who had waited all of her life, who felt if I could just touch the hem of his garment, that I could be set free. And finally was. After going to every doctor under the sun, never finding an answer, to only come to just touch the hem of his garment and find freedom. I wonder if that guy who had been blind from birth or lame from birth, who couldn't walk, or that dad who had that demonic son who now had found all the other resources run dry and finding Jesus to set his son free. You wonder if he was there that day. If I could just get a glimpse of him. If I could just say, Jesus, you changed my life. I want to say thank you. I was there when I heard you teach. I was, I was there. I watched you. I, I was the one whose eyes became like light and I could finally see. I was the one who had leprosy and no one else would be around. No one else wanted to touch. No one would even talk to me. But you came and you touched me. No one had done that for years. But you touched me. I didn't even know why. I didn't know you were going to touch me to make me whole. I just know that no one had touched me for years because of my leprosy, and you touched me. Never dreaming that I would be whole. And I'm here. In my mind's eye, I have all kinds of people that had to be there that day as this event was unfolding in front of them. You've got to remember, this is the people who had a really rich history of prophets and kings coming in front of them. And now this was the one. This was the people who had a very rich history of a, of a redeemer that was going to come, a Messiah that would come and rescue them and set them free. I've got to believe that throughout the ages, many of them had been disappointed, and now maybe he's the one. So tired of Roman rule, was he the one that could rescue us and redeem us? Please, God in heaven, tell me he's the one. It's easy to understand why there was such a stir. For the first time, many in this context had seen a real live prophet. They'd heard about him down through the ages, and now one's right in front of them. Real live miracle worker. An opportunity to thank him for what he has done. I've got to believe there's a lot of people who were there that day who had no idea why they were celebrating Matthew 21 even addresses that. It's fascinating how each of the Gospels has a little bit of a different piece of information that kind of completes the picture. And in Matthew chapter 21, it says, When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And I'm sure there were a lot of people there that day who knew who he was. Who were coming that day to cheer and to sing and to worship and to praise. They'd heard his sermons, they'd seen his miracles, many of them maybe even been healed by him, and they wanted to come and participate and celebrate from a variety of standpoints. Wanted to genuinely express their gratitude, who really did believe that he was the one that would rescue them and set them free. The saddest part, I think, of most of the story is the ones who really could have understood the significance of it all weren't excited at all. Matter of fact, in the section of Scripture in Luke chapter 19, they wanted everyone to keep quiet. 
They were so busy discussing religion that they missed the greatest opportunity of a lifetime, an opportunity to praise and adore the God of all religions who walked right into their midst. So busy discussing the questions of life that they missed it when the answers to life rode right in front of them. So busy with form and style that they missed the spontaneity of celebrating the greatest event in the history of humanity. That the king of the universe was right in their midst and they wanted it quiet. What's interesting was I began over the last few weeks to think about this day and all the people who were there that day. And tried to picture in my mind this cross spectrum of people who were there in that particular context I really began to think that all across America and around the globe today in Church Street, USA, and around this planet are people who come to this particular day and this particular week of celebration from very similar standpoints. Some can't wait for this week. It was a week when we celebrate the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords when I was rescued and redeemed and set free. And I love Easter when I had the opportunity to share my story over and over again, how Jesus came into my life and rescued me and set me free. Maybe it's the opportunity for that one who's been touched by him physically, because we still believe that this God heals and can restore and set us free and who really has seen Jesus do some amazing things, and they just want to come and celebrate and give glory to his name. There are others in Church Street, USA, who aren't sure why they're there. They just know it's Sunday morning. They know it sounds like a good thing to do, and especially on Easter Sunday or a Palm Sunday or a Good Friday of, of all the weeks, I ought to go now. I'm not sure why, I'm not sure what all the stir is about, but I ought to go. And so they do. And so for the next seven or ten days or seven or eight days, there are people from all standpoints, whether on a Monday, Thursday service or a Good Friday service or an Easter Sunday celebration, who I really believe come from some of the same standpoints now, that group that was there that day 2,000 years ago in the streets of Jerusalem come from varied responses and very different experiences and very diverse responses to the presence of God and who also have varied opinions of how we should come. What I've found down through the ages, regardless of our opinions as to how we should come or what we think or what we understand about what God expects, I've often found that the best one to go to to find out what God delights in and what he expects when we come into his presence is God. God seems to be pretty clear in his word about how he wants us to come into his presence. In Psalm 100, he says, shout for joy. All the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joy. Know that the Lord is God and he is the one who made us and we're his. We're his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. In light of knowing that, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Praise his name. For the Lord is good. His love endures forever. His faithfulness will continue through every generation. Psalm 150 said, Praise the Lord in his sanctuary, in the mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power, for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet, the harp, the lyre, the tambourine with dancing with strings and flute, with clash of cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. First Chronicles 16, it said, Give thanks to the Lord, call on His name. Make known among the nations what He has done. Sing to Him, sing praise to Him. Tell of His wonderful acts. 
Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. When you and I see the word praise, we have a variety of things in our mind as to what we may be thinking it is. Most of the time when you read it, it's one word. For the Hebrew people, they knew there were many meanings to that word. We see it as one. They saw it as having a variety of meanings and a a diversity of aspects of what praise looked like. One Hebrew word for praise meant to bow before him, to come humbly before the king of kings, not able to even look at him, but just to bow and prostrate before him, knowing who he is and what he has done. Another means to praise the Lord with your hands, to make them move, to raise them up. That's not reserved for the charismatics or the Pentecostals. It's just for people who know how to praise and know that that's one aspect of what I do when I give my adoration to the king. Another means to praise him with a processional choir. If you ever have the opportunity to go to a church in Africa or go to an African-American church, you ought to go. There's no way that I could have ever done what E.V. Hill did at the beginning of that presentation, and there's no way that I'm going to heaven without knowing that there's an enormous African-American choir there so that I could just watch them celebrate. (laughs) There's another Hebrew word that means to praise him with the instruments. And another one that means to praise him with sustained singing. Singing from the Spirit, not the hymn book or the projection screen, but deep within your soul. Notice that every single one of them are action words. They're not passive words or stoic words. They're action words. So when God says, I want you to love me with every fiber of your being, I want you to love me with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all of your strength. With all of your energy, I want you to come and give praise and adoration. Worship is best defined as ascribing worth, of bowing down, of giving homage. It's a meeting place between God and his people an avenue of expressing the awesomeness of God. A.W. Tozer said that worship remains elementary unless it begins to take on the quality of admiration. As long as the worshiper is engrobed in himself or with himself about how he feels, he's only a babe in Christ. When we begin to grow in our worship, we begin to understand how it passes from thanksgiving to admiration. It is praising God not only for what he has done, but simply for who he is. Why Jesus so often reacted to the Pharisees all the way through the New Testament because he says, your lips are mouthing the word, but your hearts aren't in it. Your bodies are here, but your mind is someplace else. You're going through the motions, but just so you know, I know your heart's not in it. Because of all the things that I may have wondered about the people that walked in there that day or was walking in that setting when Jesus was parading through Jerusalem, He was the only one that could read all their minds. And when he walks in here on Sunday morning, he knows whether we're in it or not. Regardless of what we do or what we say or how we sing or how well we sing, he knows whether our hearts are in it or not. He said, when you come to me, I want you to come to me with every fiber of your being, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. He's looking for those whose hearts really get it, who fully understand what it is we have when we have the opportunity to give them praise and adoration. I believe he's still looking for that. He said there's going to come a day when those who really get it, who really understand, are going to worship me in spirit and in truth. They'll understand. 
and the depth of the inside of the individual, the human soul and spirit, will connect with me. Because in the presence of the Almighty, there's a response. Jesus said, I came to give you life. And not just life, but abundant life. A friend of ours, Terry Wardle, who's a professor and director of a seminary in Ohio, said we so often wonder about forms and style when it comes to worship. We can have the best we can possibly imagine. It really doesn't matter until our spirit touches his. Singing, praying, praising, giving, all lead to worship, but it's more than that. It's when our spirit is ignited by his divine fire. Forms not only lead us to worship, they lead us to the one who we come to worship. What I've discovered down through the years, it's a whole lot more about preference and taste. And sometimes it's about form. When Jesus responded to the Pharisees in the crowd that day, who in Luke 19 wanted him to keep it down or to quiet things down, he said, I just need you to know that if I tell them to be quiet, their rocks are going to cry out. And every time for the last 40-some years that I've been a follower of Jesus Christ, I see that phrase, I find myself on this Sunday and next Sunday saying, Lord, may you never after have to go to the rocks to get your praise. Because we'll give it to you. We understand it. We know why we're here. We know what you did. May you never ever have to go to the rocks to get your praise because you'll get it from us. Because we understand. We do know the end of the story. We know what you did in the cross. We know what the agony of that event was all about. We, we see it over and over again. We've experienced it. We've kind of felt it. But we know the glory of Easter Sunday morning. And we're going to give you praise. Because we understand. Regardless of what they knew that, that day 2,000 years ago in the streets of Jerusalem, we, we understand. True worship to take place, it's really important. To come in complete adoration and incredible humility. To surrender myself to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. To come who I really do understand is the God who is the only source of life. And there is no other who can come and set me free. And if he's done that, I'll give him praise. Let's pray. Father, today as always, in so many ways down through the years, we join with those who 2,000 years ago came to give you praise and adoration, who really did understand that you were the source of life and you were the answer to every cry of the human heart. And so this morning, for those of us who understand that and get it, we come and give you praise. There may be others here and certainly next Sunday morning who, like the people there that day, really do know that there is no other hope but you. And there are others who will be there that day, who had come that day, who will be here this Sunday and next, who pray that there is no other hope but you. Who don't know where to go and don't know where to turn and are desperately hoping that you're everything they need. And when they come to you and find you, they'll find out that you are.